This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Brian McVeigh. Dr. McVeigh is the author of numerous publications on Japanese psychology, society, religion, and education, including The History of Japanese Psychology, Global Perspectives, 1875 to 1950, published by Bloomsbury in 2017. Dr. McVeigh, thank you for talking with me today. Well, thank you. I'm uh, very happy to share this opportunity. The reason I wanted to talk to you for the podcast is, as you may have noticed, many of the people I talk to are almost exclusively historians and scholars of Japanese literature. And so I've, I haven't talked to too many social scientists. And you've published very widely on Japanese social sciences and Japanese psychology. And this recent book about the history of Japanese psychology in particular I was hoping you might be able to talk about how the Meiji period impacts social sciences in Japan, and especially Japanese psychology. Well, like a lot of uh, areas in the Japanese society, the, the Meiji Restoration, or some people might say Revolution, really laid the groundwork for later developments in Japanese psychology, Japanese social sciences in general, and of course, you have to sort of step back and look at uh, what was going on in that part of the world at that time. But also, not just in Japan per se, but also what was happening in the social sciences in Europe and in North America, because of course, they would influence, they would not determine, but they would certainly influence what played out in Japan. And also, we have to look at what was going on in Japan at that time, because Japan, as we know, was feeling pressure from the great powers of the day, from uh, the U.S., from the European imperialist powers. And so they had to react uh, rather quickly to those pressures. And of course, they had these huge programs and projects of industrialization and gaining knowledge from all over uh, the world in order to deal with these challenges. Uh, it's not a problem per se, but there's sort of a bias in a lot of the research that's been done on Japan to look at things that are easy to measure in terms of change, things like industrialization, how many factories were built, and perhaps some ideologies that we're very familiar with, things like democracy. But what gets lost, and I, I think in our understanding of Japan, or for lack of a, a better word, uh, the, the sort of soft ideologies, as it were, things that play a huge role in how people understand themselves and how they understand society, but are, haven't really been given a lot of attention by scholars. And so I'm talking about the social sciences, and I'm talking about something like psychology. And so the foundations of psychology were laid in Japan in 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. And a lot of those institutions a lot of those understandings still structure how Japanese view the world. You mentioned that the groundwork for psychology gets laid in the 1870s and the 1880s. What is some of that institutional groundwork that's being laid at that time? Well, in terms of structures, I would say the education system, specifically what would become Tokyo University. It was at Tokyo University that a lot of the original research in Japan on psychology took place. And it would take decades for that knowledge to sort of spread throughout Japan through the educational system. But in my book, in fact, I spent a lot of time talking about those very structures and how many of the original Japanese 
know, psychologists or people interested in psychology in Japan at that time were also very much interested in education. And they viewed psychology as a practical science, as a way to spread what we might call the creed of modernity throughout the population. And so, of course, that has a lot of political implications because psychology, not just in Japan, by the way, but in other parts of the world at this time, became very much part of or entangled in attempts by political economic elites to socialize people to become modern citizens, to become productive laborers and workers. You mentioned a lot of this starts at the Imperial University of Tokyo. I've done a little bit of research on Tokyo University and the Kobu Daigakko, the, the Imperial College of Engineering, that is, is one of the kind of forerunners. Mm-hmm. I mean, at that time, many of the professors teaching things like engineering or, or civil engineering, mechanical engineering, architecture, are all oyatoi foreign advisors who come in or are brought in. Is the same true in the case of psychology? Um, that's a good question. Uh, to a degree, yes, but actually, I, I, when I think about it, it seems to me that there are probably some people in the elite education system in Japan at that time who didn't really understand or know what psychology was and didn't really see it as being something important. You know, we take psychology for granted these days as one of the, the main disciplines that, you know, everyone takes courses of psychology when they go to university. But you have to remember at that time, not just in Japan, but all over the world, psychology was a very new field. And a lot of people didn't know what to make of it. And so in the case of Japan, you had some very audacious intellectual pioneers, people like Motora Yujiro, who left Japan and went to the U.S. and studied psychology and, uh, of course, th- there were others, too, but he was uh, the first one. And so you, in the case of psychology, it was more of Japanese leaving Japan, going abroad and studying. Of course, they did that in other, other fields, too. But I think in the case of Japan, you, you had some, but you did not have a lot of people coming over to teach psychology. Because, as I said, psychology didn't, was not really formed yet as, as an intellectual discipline. So in some ways, you could say Japan was one of these places where the the field was really emerging. Was that the perception around the rest of the world about Japan's place in the discipline? Yes, yes. And uh, as I said, even in North America and in Europe, you know, psychology was pretty much considered a branch of philosophy. And what made psychology a new field beginning in the 1880s, 1890s in, in places like Germany, France, and the United States, is that they try to make it scientific. They try to break away from what we might call philosophy and make it more experimental. Uh, you know, they had a sort of what they call natural science envy that I think psychologists today still have, actually. I mean, that fits that, that kind of Meiji story of positivistic science and, and the introduction of kind of enlightenment ideals of positivism. And, you know, it, it does seem so familiar in some ways with many of the different fields that Japan is trying to introduce during the Meiji period. Yes. Yes. Um, but, you know, like I said uh, um, a little while ago, the Japanese elite that saw a value in psychology, they saw... Uh, a very practical value in psychology. You know, once psychology gained some respect by maybe the, the maybe around 1910, 1920, perhaps, that is when the Japanese intellectual elite 
saw that psychology could be used to socialize, as I said, good citizens. Uh, you could train people to be good workers and also military applications. And so then are they thinking psychology is a way that they can train the people or, or are they using psychology as a lesson or how exactly, what is the relationship between psychology and the training the workers or training the military, like you said? Well, it, it actually wasn't too different from a lot of the uh, psychological research that was be, being done in Europe and uh, North America at the time. They would, for example, through the psychologists in Japan who specialized in business and believed that workers, if you somehow could figure out how to motivate them, they would work harder and that way you would make more money. It seems obvious to us today, but that's uh, one example. Uh, in, in education in general, the, uh, again, we take it for granted that education, that you can be trained to be a teacher, that, that there's almost a science behind it. But at the time, going back the late Meiji period or so, that was a novel concept that, that you could train teachers to be better teachers. And of course, in Japan at that time, there was a real rush to figure out how to fill people with knowledge and how to do it in a very rationalistic, in a very scientific way. Because, you know, of course, as we know, before Japan industrialized, Japan was an agrarian society. Very few people had any type of long-term education. Of course, they had some education, some academies. But the idea of educating the entire population that was a, a very novel idea in Japan. In fact, it was a novel idea even in America in the late 19th century that the entire population should be mobilized as workers and as citizens and also as soldiers or warriors when the need arose. You mentioned that institutionally, University of Tokyo is, is one of the first places, but I, I imagine there must have been kind of disciplinary journals that pop up and people are circulating their research, maybe even participating in a more kind of global sharing of psychological research. Yes, in fact, that's a very important feature of institutionalizing any social science or any branch of knowledge. And that's what we see in Japan. Uh, we see the establishment of societies that specialized in psychology and also journals. And of course, you did have international conferences. And it's really quite impressive when you think about it, when you think of the, the late 1800s, early 1900s, where people would travel from Japan and attend the first psychological conferences. And you had a real, well, my impression anyways, is that the Japanese intellectual pioneers who were trying to build up the field of psychology were very international in their outlook. You know, they, they Usually they, they would speak English or German, of course, because they'd have to go overseas to study. And my sense, I, this isn't anything I can really prove, but my sense is that they were interested in psychology as, as a global science. And of course, there were some Japanese psychologists who did look at psychology as a science to figure out what it means to be Japanese, what's unique about the Japanese. Of course, you, you did have some of that, but it seems that many of these thinkers were very open-minded and uh, very uh, progressive 
in that they had a, a very strong international sense. And at the time, I, I'm thinking of other social sciences like anthropology, ethnography. Many of these were, were very part and parcel of the colonialist project in, in many places around the world. And you think of like white imperialists using anthropology to, to justify the colonialism. Do we see Japan using psychology in the colonies, or, or does psychology contribute to Japanese expansion? Yes, it does. I, I can't think of any specific examples offhand. I have to refer to my book, but most certainly that was the case. And actually, the one, I, I hate to use the word when we're talking about imperialism or colonialism, but one positive, we might say, is that before the war, some Japanese psychologists went to institutions of higher education in Korea, in Taiwan, which were, of course, under occupation uh, during the war, and they set up units within institutions of higher education for psychology. And these units after the war would evolve into uh, departments of psychology. But at the same time, I, there probably were some, what we might say, darker uses of psychology during Japan's colonial period in the same way that we saw with anthropology and with ethnography and sociology too. So far, we've been talking about psychology specifically, but I, I imagine the other social sciences are, are also being promoted in the late Meiji period in the imperial universities at the same time? Yes, they were. Sociology, I think, is um, a good example. And like psychology, the history of sociology, at least in the English language, has not really been investigated as much as it deserves. But yes, uh, in, in fact, some of the first Japanese who taught or tried to explore this emerging field of psychology um, also did a lot of work in sociology also. So there's a lot of intellectual crossbreeding between psychology and sociology. And in your recent book on Japanese psychology, you, you date it from 1875 all the way up to the 20th centuries. Can you talk in, in kind of broad terms about how the practice of psychology changes in Japan over those years? Well, yeah, well actually, in uh, my research, my, my original, uh, and I, sh I should uh, just give some context, my original plan was to do more of a um, ethnography or anthropology of the way psychology is practiced in Japan in the, uh, the 1990s or so. But I told myself, well, before I do that, I should do a little bit of historical research and look at the background. and. So I started to um, get some notes together, and I was going to do a, just a short article on the history of uh, psychology, just as background for my ethnography. But I collected enough material, I decided I should turn it into a book. And so that's why I sort of stopped right after the war, because there was just so much material you know, be, between 1875 and the end of the war. But we can divide the evolution of psychology in Japan up until around the end of the war into different stages. In my book, I talk about what I call the pre-institutionalization period, and that lasted from 1875 to 1880. And then the next stage I call incipient institutionalization from around 1880-1903. And then the next stage from 1903 to 1926, I call organizational institutionalization. And then from 1926 to 1945, I talk about 
application, specialization, and integration. And so that period from 1926 to 1945 is when psychology in Japan really came into its own and they started to apply and to use uh, psychology in what they thought were very useful ways. And then the last period, 1945 to the present, though actually in my book, I don't really talk about what happens much after 1945, but I call that the post-imperial reconstruction and expansion of psychology. And so now in most universities in Japan, you have courses in psychology. Of course, many people major in psychology or at least take some courses in psychology. And again, we take that for granted because we're used to that. But going back certainly before the war, even from the 1920s to the end of the war, psychology was still considered somewhat of a strange, exotic field. Even though people in Japan were doing good, solid research, you know, it was not, it didn't, it lacked the sort of mass appeal that it has uh, today. And that's a change, by the way, that we see not just in Japan, but around the world. You mentioned that you started out on the project by wanting to do an ethnography of how psychology is practiced in Japan today. Could you tell us a, a bit more about that? You know, what is what is happening in psychology today in Japan? And is there a connection or, or is this different than what we saw in the Meiji period? Or is there a legacy of the Meiji period for today in Japanese psychology? Oh, that's a big question. I think, um, yes, I think there is a, a legacy. Um, I think Japanese psychology in general has been very strong when it comes to studying perception and how the senses work, things that are very, we might say, empirical. I'll tell you my what my real interest is, the, I guess I could put it in, into question form, right now in Japan, is there this sort of obsession with this self in a person's inner world, the same way that I think many North Americans and Europeans have? Because to me, the bigger issue is one of modernity. That That's a hallmark of modernity, I think. This idea that we are very concerned about our interior self, our interior feelings. And my hunch is that in Japan, it's not as developed yet, but it's going in that direction. And that, that's a sort of a vague way to put things, but that was my original research question. And I never really followed through. I haven't done it yet, actually. So it's a little hard uh, to answer, but... You know, just to repeat what I said a moment ago, I'm interested in larger questions of what is modernity and has human nature changed the past two or three centuries? I think that it has. That's an interesting point about modernity. And, and I mean, that's certainly something that was very present in the minds of people during the Meiji period. And I was even thinking about Ito Hirobumi is talking about, he goes to San Francisco on the Iwakura mission and, and he, he's giving a speech to all of the people there who, are, who have gathered to welcome them. And he talks about how Japan's material civilization is progressing so rapidly and, and even lists the number of things that uh, have been constructed in Japan, for example, railways, telegraphs, lighthouses. But he says the thing that we haven't really progressed yet is spiritual civilization. And he's talking about the kind of internal things. And I wonder if that's maybe what he was getting at, this idea of the self. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, I, I think there's um, a feeling, of course, in Japan, and not just in Japan, but other societies that have modernized very quickly, that something's been lost. And of course, what that thing is, it's very difficult to talk about and, and to uh, define, though, you know, in, in places like Japan, they since the war, they, they talk about it a lot, about what it means to be Japanese, what is the Japanese self? 
And, you know, to me, when you look at things from a global anthropological perspective, there is no mysterious Japanese self, but certainly you can make the argument that the sense that something has been lost is very strong. And you hear so much recently about the lost decades that has now kind of gone into two decades now. And the same kind of questions of loss and, and kind of precariousness that seems to be creating a new setting for or creating a, a new set of conditions for people in Japan. Is that kind of loss of identity part of this lost decades narrative? I think so. Uh, I mean, when I was in Japan, there was this idea of nostalgia for uh, an earlier, more pure form of being Japanese. But I think a lot of these uh, concerns and a lot of this worry, you know, especially in the case of Japan, comes from what's happening internationally. And I think... It just seems like ancient history now, I suppose, but with the end of the, with the, uh, the Cold War. Well, of course, the Cold War has not ended in, in that Northeast Asia with North Korea and the tensions between China and Taiwan. But nevertheless, there was this idea that, well, now that the U.S. has defeated communism, formed the Soviet Union, that Japan was going to lose an ally. Japan won't be able to rely on the U.S. And certainly that seems to be that that perception is even stronger now with the Trump administration. And meanwhile, at the same time, you have this explosive emergence of China as a superpower. Uh, you have tensions on the North Korean peninsula. So all these things play a role throughout the, the decades, the past two or three decades. And I think many Japanese feel perhaps a, a bit abandoned and worried about their future. And so what I'm trying to say is things that happen in distant places do affect us. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, uh, in the United States during the 1960s, early 70s, the Vietnam War, how that was sort of, you might say, a the match that lit a huge fire that drove a lot of the social movements and, and upheavals throughout the 60s and 70s. And I, I think it's, it's similar in Japan. We don't see people taking to the streets, but certainly there is this idea that Japan is in a dangerous uh, situation. And uh, this does affect how people go about their daily lives. And add to that kind of economic concerns, the demographic crisis Japan's facing. And with those geopolitical things, it, it kind of does combine to create this perfect storm of, of precariousness, as many social scientists have pointed to in their research right. recently. Right. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's right. And with the aging population um, and, you know, this, these debates have been going on for a long time about uh, should Japan allow immigrants to come in and do some of the labor? Um, and of course, a lot of Japanese are not in favor of that. And so all these things are tied together, the, the geopolitical, the economic pressures, and basically what does it mean to be Japanese in a world that is changing so fast? The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.